Welcome to the Ask Philip podcast. Today, Philip talks weed, greed, and corporate law with attorney Cedric Powell. Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. And now... Here's Philip. We are back with another episode of the Ask Philip podcast. And today we're talking about private equity, money. Basically, I think I think title is going to be Weed, Greed, and Corporate Law. That's what it was. And, and Cedric Powell is my guest today. Uh, and we go way back, right? I mean, you were one of the first people I met when I when I moved to Dallas, like almost dang, 10 years ago. It has yeah, been absolutely. 10 years ago. So even though you don't live here anymore, you 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 went on up there with the with the with the rich folks. Y'all went with a, with a rich <laughs> folks. Is that, is that who lives in DC? <laughs> yeah, man, all the rich folks. It's nothing but money in DC. You can't yeah. you can't you can't be in DC and and only work for Uber. It's gonna be hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and I, I ain't talking about Uber the corporation. I'm talking about like an Uber driver Dr- driving Uber. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, I'm in DC. We definitely met. Um, uh, you were one of the first people I met after I started practicing. I think you reached out pretty early into my career. Yeah. So it's good to be on. I've been watching you all on um, LinkedIn is where I see the posts. So I've been watching, you know, the podcast there. So I'm happy to be on it. Yeah, no, man. Thank, thanks for coming out. So t- tell everybody, you know, let's talk about your origin story. You know, where, 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 where you grew up, how you got into corporate law, how you ended up in, uh, in, in, in D.C. as a big time private equity legal advisor big big time your words not mine but I, <laughs> i'll go with it um so yeah so i grew up in new orleans um new orleans kid uh, new orleans public school kid uh went to howard undergrad so class of 03 at howard um and then i was in dc for a while originally in the hospitality industry with the mandarin oriental hotel group and then decided to go to law school in uh, 2006 met my wife, came back to Dallas with her and to go to law school. 2006, we had our daughter right before I started law school. So I was in Dallas for 10 years, um, law school and then practicing, started my practice in Dallas and some of the larger firms in Dallas. And then in 2015, made a geographic and firm move to back to the D.C. area since we wanted to be back in D.C. My wife is also a Howard grad. Mm. Um, and I've been we've been here since um 2015, 2016 together. Uh, so my practice uh, has always been a, a transactional practice, um, always private M&A transactions, basically always in the middle market. So somewhere between $25, $50 million deals to um, my, my practice really usually around 100, 200 million on the buy side. And then um, maybe on the sell side with the private equity clients, they they push the price a bit more. So maybe 100 to five or 600 million on, on the sell side. Uh, my practice has always been private M&A transactions. Over the past six or seven years, my focus has been more so on private equity um, deals and private equity clients and the transactions that, that they're doing. It's given the deal volume that's available 
working with private equity funds versus um, operating entities who may or may not have an, a strategic acquisition on their calendar for a year. So that's kind of general background on me and no industry focus um, in in the, the, the M&A industry. So I, I do deals in every industry, have clients who are focused and in investing in every industry. Um, being in DC and given some of the funds that we represent, uh, we do do a fair number of aerospace and defense deals so involving a government contracting component, uh, but but I've I've done deals in manufacturing, technology, um, pharmaceuticals, food and beverage, uh, grocery stores, you name it. I've, I've probably done an M and A deal in that industry. And then on the cannabis side, I know we're going to talk about cannabis. Um, cannabis is an interest. It's an industry focus, mainly from an M and A perspective, as the industry. Um, comes online more from a federal perspective. I know we just saw the historic vote in the House and waiting on the, the Senate to see what happens. So once we see the plant descheduled, cannabis will be like wheat, you know, it'll be like corn and just another plant that has a number of different uses and, um, you know, deals are getting done and investments being made. The banking industry will open up. And so when that happens, there'll be a lot of activity and so I'm I'm involved in on the cannabis side, and right now I do a lot of focus on from the social justice, social equity perspective, and looking at some of the diversity and inclusion issues and realities of the industry, going back to uh, you know the the so-called so-called war on drugs and the various um, federal and state legislation that has impacted our community and certain communities and now with the industry coming online you know some of the um exclusive um realities that we see in different states where you don't see the same folks who were involved and impacted negatively in criminalization uh benefiting from decriminalization so that's kind of my i guess three minute elevator speech no no that's cool man I, and i think uh i think uh i, I was just re i didn't get a chance to read up on it but i i i Saved it because I want to read it later. But Jay Z just got into the can, or maybe he'd been in the cannabis business, and um, and success. They were they were announcing his product, but um, I know he got a product, right? A joint product, like uh, when you roll. You, I think it's selling joints, rolling joints, or what is it? Yeah, yeah. So he, I know that um, he had previously launched his own cannabis kind of venture, and I don't know the specifics of his venture, but the announcement I saw recently was that he partnered with another. Um, company in the cannabis space, and he's kind of their creative or um, strategic director. So he's kind of laying out what their focus will be as far as product lines and investments, et cetera, in the cannabis space. But I know that he has a separate, and I can't call the name of it, but he has, has a separate um, cannabis line that, that was already in place. Well, on his but I know, but I know that, that also um, I saw where they started an investment fund that's mm -hmm. focused on. Um, cannabis investments in particular, um, cannabis investments for, for, for minority entrepreneurs. Well, and, and, and my point looking at that was I was like, man, I love that. Full circle, right? You know what I'm saying? Jay-Z Jay -Z started entrepreneurship, you know, selling, you know, selling illicit, illicit stuff, um, you know, because that was, I mean, that, that was... That was what was around, right? Uh, and it was illegitimate. And we know he sold more than the marijuana. But I was like, man, ain't, that's, that's pretty dope. Now it's come full circle. You know what I'm saying? Because you see, you know, we get to see all of these families with all this money today that's legitimate, that started illegitimate, and they're like American icons. And I'm like, we're, we're finally getting to see us get to do it, you know? Like Jay started 
you know, illegally, but became legit. And now he gets to go back to the business or one of the businesses that he started. Yeah, uh, illegally. That that so that that topic right there, I feel like we could do the whole podcast <laughs> on just that topic and one piece of it that for me, I think is often I don't know if it's overlooked, but it's not given, um, I guess, full weight is, you know, you, you use the word entrepreneurship and it really is entrepreneurship, but it's also uh, business acumen. It is kind of enterprise and, and industry because, you know, when you look at whether a business is legal or whether it's illegal, it still lives and dies by the same kind of business acumen and business realities. You have supply, you have supply chain issues, you have distribution, you have competition issues, et cetera. And, you know, what is a reality is we have seen, and the the proof is there, Jay-Z just being one of them, we have seen the evidence of like keen business minds that were, for whichever reason, relegated to, um, criminal enterprises as opposed to um, legal enterprises. But in making the transition from criminal to legal, you see the same application and the same level of um, of, of success, right? Like, I mean, how many people were never criminal entrepreneurs, but are also not billionaires? Right. So, you know, that, that mind was just being applied to a certain industry and now it's been applied to legal industries and you see the same level of success, but, but with no ceiling. So I, I, that's a, and he's not the only one, you know, I mean, you, you've seen it. We see it time and time again in, 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 in you know, his industry after his first industry was rap and rap is full of that reality. Mm-hmm. You know, me, me being a guy from New Orleans, right. When I was in New Orleans growing up, Cash Money Records was a local, mm-hmm. local record company. And, you know, aside from rap, they were also, you know, <laughs> known for being a criminal enterprise and, you know, of some, in since some some respects, right? And you saw that transition made. You've seen it with folks like Young Jeezy, with T.I. You know, it, it, it's just a it's a reality that success in business is success in business. And once a person makes that transition, they apply the same realities, but without the, the, the level of fear and stress that comes with the other side of it. Well, and, and you know, and, and, here's the, and here's the part, whenever people are like down on you know, the future of black people. I'm like, you must have not studied just the history of like society. Cause you look at, you know, before in America, before we were, per- I mean, we've always been, we've always been persecuted in America for color, but before America, right. And people persecuted on color before, like, you know, we had the big American slave trade. They used to persecute on religion, right. You had the Christian persecuting the Jews and it, it, you know, it still kind of goes on. But um, in America, at least like, Back in the day, the Jewish were relegated to entertainment, right? They they did a little bit of financial, but they were relegated to the money markets, which was a low profit business, and not you know none of the Anglo's. What, what do you call them? The, that's what it was: wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? So the point is, you know, we see we see the the ascent that they've been able to have being persecuted in in America, and I'm like, now we're on that same trajectory, right? You know, we were relegated to entertainment. You know what I'm saying? And all this kind of stuff. And now we're like, all right, cool. We're going to take it and we're going to flip it and we're going to use it to make our community better. And I love that. No, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. I think um, the current focus in society around social justice, restorative justice, it only adds and, and, and coupled with um, the digital age of media and music and how anyone can put out their music and their message to the world and make 
make money off of it directly. I mean, it's a it's a dynamic time in history uh, in the context of kind of black ventures and black entrepreneurship and how as drivers of culture, we're now able to benefit directly from what we've continued to create over the course of history. Facts, facts. So what so let's stay on cannabis for a little bit. What um cuz right now it's some states it's legal in some states but you you can't transport it per state but then if it passes federally then you'll be able to transport like like what's the distinction on what's going on in the states and what's going on at the federal level with cannabis. Sure, so kind of generally um our American legal system is this federalist system so we have the two two forms of government the federal government and the various state governments and you know a lot about the political conversations in our country they're always focused on larger small federal government states rights etc a lot of people like to frame for example the slavery conversation and civil war in terms of states rights which is a fair framing it's just the state's right to own slaves or permit slaves to be owned so states rights has always been a a big issue and it was a part of kind of the framework of of our country and you know how the federal government and the federal um, the constitution et cetera were passed was you know limiting what the federal government could do. That said, today we have so we have federal laws, we have state laws, we have federal prisons, federal courts, state prisons, state courts, um, and so they have both federal and state criminal and civil laws and 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 realities, and so. On the cannabis side, we have, you know, the, the scheduling of drugs, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, et cetera. Marijuana, cannabis is currently Schedule 1 narcotic. So it's, you know, the most in, in there with some of the most dangerous drugs that we know of at the federal level. Um, and so we saw over the past 10, 15 years, we saw um, different states come online and say, hey, you know, at the state level, we don't agree. We think that there are some... Um, legal support for having a different view here. We're not going to criminalize. We're not going to prosecute. We're going to permit. I mean, in California, going back to probably 20 plus years ago, there was always, um, or there has been, I should say, uh, some permission in certain places for marijuana grows, right? Within a certain amount, certain number of plants used for certain purposes, you can grow over here. And that's kind of decriminalization at the state level, but nothing stopping a federal agent from coming into that population where the state level, there is no prosecution and rating, mm. rating that facility and saying this is a violation of federal law. So we've seen over the past and maybe 10 years or so, um, federal, the federal government coming out and saying, hey, we'll defer to the states. So if the states say you can do this, we will not initiate federal prosecutions, federal enforcement activity in those states because we'll say the states have the right. And so with that um, statement or stance coming from the federal government, we've seen various states come online and and permit some form of legalization or decriminalization of of cannabis, of marijuana, whether it be um, for medical use or whether it be for full adult recreational use. I think the numbers today, I think it's maybe 33 or so states that have some form of legalization or decriminalization with, I think it's um, I think it's upwards of 10 to 15 now that um, have kind of full recreational use that's been um, legalized at the state level. Um, to your point about how does it impact state to state, um, similarly, the federal laws, right, 
they govern not activity necessarily within the state, although some apply there, but most definitely activity between states. So interstate commerce, kind of like the federal interstate system, the blue and red signs versus the black and white signs within a, a state. And so any commerce that, that occurs across state lines, it's, a, it's within federal jurisdiction. And so um, the, the fed, because marijuana or cannabis is still a schedule one, narcotic the federally chartered banks can't can't bank it they can't can't receive funds that were generated from the the sale of, of those products because you're just like receiving funds from the sale of crack cocaine it's, it's no it's no different so uh one you know the, the business is like as, as largely a cash business in the u.s or you have some state chartered banks and other banks that don't have federal charters that are willing to do some form of banking in particular states and some that are not. I talked to a CEO um, of a, of a, of a state charter bank um, about a month ago. And he said, we won't touch it. Mm. We won't touch it. You know, it's not clear to us that, um, you know, what, what, where it's going It's not clear to us that with the change in um, federal administration, that there's not a massive shift in position on the topic absent descheduling. So we won't touch it until we see, a clear descheduling of the plant, full federal legalization, and then we know that there is no enforcement regime, regardless of, of the fact that our state has said that there is full legalization or legalization in, in whatever form. Um, and so, so today, what you see is um, you, he you hear this term often, multi-state operators. And, and I'm, and I should have prefaced my statements by saying I'm not a cannabis lawyer. I just pay attention to the industry as it evolves, one from the social justice side and two, you know, to be a part of it once it, it, it there is full legalization and it is, you know, there's going to be a wellspring of MA activity. So, you know, there's a lot of detail that I'm not going into here, but um, you see operations within particular states and then you have what's called multi-state operators. So you have a company that has operations in different states, but each operation is kind of siloed by state because you know, customer bases across states would be interstate commerce. And then that would trigger, you know, federal, um, federal legal issues that, you know, you don't want to be able to run afoul of what are um, federal criminal statutes on the books today. Got it. So, so hypothetically, let's say I wanted to get me some edibles from California. I can hop on a plane, go to California. I can eat the edibles in California, but I couldn't buy them in California and bring them back to Texas and eat them here? Does that, does that apply to usage as well? Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you trans, once you left, so I think there was some, I think LA came out on this topic a while back and said LAX no longer has marijuana searches. Like they're not checking for marijuana as a part of the TSA process. So cool. So you can go to Cali, <laughs> you can go to LA, you can buy the edibles, you can use them, all of that. Right. You put them in your bag. You go to LAX. You can make it through TSA. Once you get on that plane. And it takes off. I, I don't know. I'm not an aviation lawyer, but I don't know if there are laws that govern that substance being on the plane itself mm -hmm. or whether the laws only hit once you cross like the California, Nevada line or the California, Arizona line. And now you've crossed over state to state with this substance and it is not legal, for example, in Arizona or it's not legal in 
Idaho or whatever state you just crossed into. Now you continue to cross state lines. You end up in, for example, Texas. Right. So now you've carried this substance across state lines. It's an illegal substance. You have this interstate reality. Yeah, you you have. There's a question if you get if you if in Texas your bag runs through the um runs through the the, the you know whatever they use in, in the airport to scan bags and they come back with this hit, you know, in addition to whatever <laughs> Texas state charges, there may be some federal charges that come from that. Yeah. So 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 key note: if you go to get some edibles in California, just take them all. If you got some left when you get on that plane, you're gonna. And you're going to be high as hell on that plane. Literally. Literally. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a, it's a good, good point. Great point. Because you see it um, even within cities and states, the, the way that marijuana may be used is still regulated. Right. Like I don't most states don't permit just kind of public consumption of marijuana. You can't just stand at the gas station and smoke a joint. Like that's not what adult. Uh, recreational use means it means you can go into a dispensary purchase what you want and go back into your private place mm-hmm. and consume it and but i but i think a lot of people from other states they, they go to whatever place california and i see it on like instagram folks post videos <laughs> of them like smoking a, a joint at the gas station it's like that's that's not the activity that's legalized you're still putting yourself in harm's way for no reason yeah yeah i went to i went to uh I went to Toronto in college, and uh, and I may or may not have been participating, but I saw some folks outside uh, smoking a joint, like in front of cops. And this was like in two thousand and what three, four, you know. So so um, so yeah, I uh, this is in Toronto. So they 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 I and I don't even know their rules, but they apparently haven't cared for a while up there. Um, now there there is there's full legalization in Canada, and I don't know the rules either around kind of public consumption. But um, you know when we you know I know you're a um, a capital markets guy, so you know all the the cannabis stocks that people are trading on and are excited about they're largely on the the Canadian uh, capital markets exchanges, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that's who's listing those companies, but there there are no um, American listed cannabis companies got it so let's talk about uh mergers and acquisitions in the black community right because i feel like um i feel like you know there's probably a lot of opportunity and i know it's a lot of money out there right i know i know you have a lot of um black people with a lot of money now um and you have a lot of undercapitalized you know small black businesses so you know what do you see going on in in that space and, and and the trends there and you know, because I'm clueless, like just open my eyes to what's going on. Uh, your question is, what am I seeing as far as trends and mergers and acquisitions in the black community? Yeah. Are you seeing are you seeing the marrying of the two as far as like because there, there is the money and there is the need. Is there some sort of now marrying of the two, like getting the money that's in the, you know, black community? Because you got all these black black people with money starting funds and funding black businesses and buying black businesses. Is, is, is there like a... Um, is that bridge being gapped? So, yeah, it's a good question. I think um, we, when we talk about mergers and acquisitions activity, um, you know, it, it kind of starts with the business owner or the CEO or the, um, you know, the, the finance person who's kind of developing strategy for the business. As you said, there are a number of black owned or black managed 
funds or investment vehicles out there that are interested in looking for and actively engaged in investing in businesses and in, and in particular black and minority owned businesses. I think w- what we often see or w- what we see in larger amounts than I think um, maybe it's, it's, it's a disproportionate amount is um, kind of a lack of an interest mm. from the business owner a particular business owner in an M&A, or if it's not lack of interest, a lack of understanding for the benefits of M&A and how M&A is used you know, as an everyday tool to um, kind of grow businesses. And on, on the flip side of that, not to put all of it just on kind of the business owners in the black community don't know what M&A is. You know, there's also the reality that a lot of M&A deals get done through fi- through financing, right? So a lot of, a lot of M&A deals get done in particular in the private equity space. Nearly all of them get done to some extent um, through um, your use of, of debt financing. So you have, you know, a acquisition financing facility that's, that's made available and then a portion of the purchase price is, 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 is leveraged, right? As just, just similar to buying a home, you know, there's a, an, an equity piece, a cash piece is put down, and then with that comes this debt piece from from some debt investor, whether it's a bank or some other debt fund. Um, and so, what, whether there's access to those types of investments, and, and you know, there's a lot of data around M and A for Black business owners and in, and in, um, investment generally. You know, in the venture, I see venture capital and M and A is different concepts because of my practice and because of how I'm connected to mm-hmm. to those industries. But even when it comes to venture financing and access to capital, you see realities and data proves out that there are dearths of financing opportunities for uh, minority and black owned businesses in kind of traditional venture spaces. And then to some extent, um, there is kind of, and there's a growing of definitely a growing, um, black venture capital community on the fund side, but there's also the realities that exist as far as the, the numbers and representation at the fund level for folks who are making those decisions and are a part of the investment community. So that's probably a long way of saying. So, 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 so um, M&A, not being case, as it relates to black businesses and black business owners, it's not, um, I think where I would like to see it, mm-hmm. but, but there's definitely, um, there's definitely a foundation there on all sides, the investment side, investor side, and also the business owner side where you see deals getting done and people who are interested in, in, in having deals done. Well, so, cause here's my question. Like, how does it get done? Cause you know what I'm saying? And maybe I'm, like you said, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a capital markets guy, so I see that. But but I also see there's there's a lot more money. There's a lot more black people with money than people realize it. And then there are some really good operators that might be 35 with no money yet, or 20. You know, what I'm saying 28 with no money yet, or 52 that just started their business with no money yet, but they're good operators. Like, how do you build an ecosystem to marry the two? You know, what I'm saying, is it sure. No, that's a great that's a great question. I don't know that I have the answer to how you build the ecosystem, but I will say that um, M and A is it, it is what it is. It is a, it is transactions being done between businesses, business owners, investors, and so something as simple as two barbershops becoming one right. is an M and A transaction. Something as simple as you know two two landscaping and construction companies becoming one is an M&A transaction. I did a transaction um, back at, when I was in Dallas, I did a deal. It was like a $50,000 deal. And a guy had a, um, a pool construction business and he had a competitor who was looking to get out of the business and focus more on um, home renovation. So he wanted to sell his 
um, landscaping and pool servicing business to the patio pool construction business owner. And so that deal got it done, $50,000 and a, and a, um, and a non-compete and the deal got done. And so there, there are definitely opportunities for mergers and acquisitions as, um, you know, transactions that may be beneficial or strategic and important for, for businesses in, in our community. And that's why I focus on the knowledge or education piece of it, because it doesn't, you know, we see the big headline stuff, but there's mm-hmm. a lot of smaller stuff that's happening every day that kind of allows businesses to grow and build. Yeah, no, fact, cause facts. I see like, like I give like an example, right? So you take, you take the, 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 the Robert Smith model, and do it on the small scale. And, and you mentioned it. It's, I swear, man. Me and my homie who owns who owns a um, who owns a cleaners uh, over here in Cedar Hill. We we before the pandemic, we were getting together every Friday for like five years. And I was telling them, I was like, I was like, bro, like this is what Robert, you know, this is what Robert Smith is doing at a big level. He's taking technology, integrating it with companies, uh, improving them to the to the twenty first century. Through just 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 getting them the right tech, and then up and then um and that's a I know it's a simple version of what he does, but he's updating them and then selling it for valuation. I was like, bro, we can do that for like, or I say, first of all, you can do that for cleaners, right? You get on your, you know, what I'm saying if you if you you got the template for a successful business, now you got to do is build the systems to scale, find somebody with money, and just take out all the cleaners in, in Southwest Dallas, and then eventually hold Dallas and all that. We can we can do that for like black communities around the world and that, and that's why i'm asking the question because i'm like man like the money's out there um in, anyway like you you no, already, you no, already it's, answered it's the question it's a great but. question and you're right i think the the point you made in there is that's the point which is um having the acumen to run the successful business in the particular industry mm-hmm. or having the acumen across industries to run successful businesses even with um kind of well, you know, private equity funds, well, of whatever size, you see specific expertise um, often within a particular business industry or sector. So the fund will have an investment criteria, investment focus, and they're focused on kind of B two B software businesses, mission critical. And like you brought up Vista, they do a lot of those deals, mission critical software companies, B two B. Um, or you may have a, a fund that's focused on food and beverage consumer facing products. So you may have a fund that's focused on aerospace and defense and kind of three letter agency contracting um, companies that have these kind of classified top secret, et cetera, type clearances and are doing that work. Or you may have, you know, fund that's focused on manufacturing. Right. And so or you may have a hospitality focused fund that acquires, you know, restaurants and hotels and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that it's the, the having the operational know how to, to know how to run the business successfully in that space and how to um, streamline it and then scale it. Right. I mean, that that's the that's the concept there. And so you're absolutely right. Um, a successful cleaners. Um, kind of, and that, that's, that's, that's George Jefferson, right? That, mm-hmm. that was, that's what he, you know, he, he built it organically, right? But um, you don't have to build it organically. You can build organically to a certain point, and then you can acquire five new stores instead of opening new stores one by one by one by one. And that, that's just the concept. Yep. 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 And, and, and I hear what you mean too. Cause yeah, it, it is, a, it is, a, I, I had a couple of friends that own businesses and when I explained to them about, 
how how money works and how relatively simple it is to get money if you have the plan. I think I think that I think there's a gap, you know, cuz you know, the four times I had the conversation, they first of all, they were like, I'm not giving up part of my business. And I said, "No, no, no, listen, listen. You know what I'm saying? Like you give up a part, but you know, uh it's going to be a bigger part you're going to have and everybody makes more money." Right? So it's it's like the educational gap cuz these were like pretty you know what I'm saying? These were not dudes that just, I don't want to knock anybody's business, but these weren't like, you know what I'm saying? These weren't dudes who um, who don't know. You know what I'm saying? They were relatively um, educated folks, but when it comes to money, they're like, I don't have a clue how that works. And and it was already a negative. I don't want to get nobody in my business. I'm like, bro, it's not. Right, and and that and that's the point. I've had conversations with um, black CFOs, CEOs, who do know and understand and have an interest in doing M&A deals and in doing them in, within the community. And there is kind of like we're having this conversation right now around the vaccine, right? And the lack of trust as far as the healthcare industry in the black community. There is a kind of standing lack of trust to some extent with these concepts of, you know, everything that I have and own is on paper and it's based on this agreement between us and them, et cetera, versus I show up every day to this business. I have the keys to the door. I know all the contracts that are in place and I know how to chase new contracts to grow the pie. That's, you know, that's, that's kind of brick and mortar. I can touch that. Well, this concept of I gave this person 20%, 30%, 100%, 95% of my business, I got back a 5% equity rollover. I got some cash at closing. And now I'm running the business and I'm going to eat, you know, off of liquidity event as well. That's a, you know, that's a, an industry to itself. Right. And I think this is a good segue. I think one of the things we talked about before getting on the, the, the this call is, um, you know, advisors, right. Whether it be legal advisors or financial advisors, I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, as a lawyer, I tell people that, um, we're like plumbers to a certain extent, you know, you, you, you need a plumber in a, in a, in a few instances. Um, first, in the first instance, you need a plumber if you're building something, right? If you're going to build a house, a plumber has to come in and run the pipes and, you know, make sure that the, that the, the floor plan shows where the, how the water flows in and flows out, where the toilets are, et cetera, right? And then if something breaks, you need a plumber. If you do an addition to an existing house, you need a plumber. And that's kind of how, you know, transactional legal counsel is, M&A counsel is, right? Like, a, you know, a lawyer, like with my practice, if you want to start a business, I can have those conversations with you about how to set it up, um, you know, including with an eye toward whatever your next goal is for the business. Um, if you're if you have a problem in the business, you're trying to solve a problem, a lawyer can help you do that. And then um, similarly, if um, you want to do a transaction, you want to add, do an addition, right? I want to sell my business or I want to add to my business or I want to buy another business, um, the lawyer can help you. So we're really kind of service providers similar to how a plumber functions in a, in a home space. Oh, yeah, you, you, you answered my, my next question. Well, um, before I get to my last question, what, what other thing that, that I'd not asked that you think is important to know because I'm relatively green in the in the private equity space. Um, I think l- less private equity, more kind of M&A, um, you know, folks should consider it and just ask the questions. Um, there are a lot, there are a lot more now um, 
attorneys in you know transactional attorneys of color and black transactional attorneys like myself um you know so, so to the extent that was a and that has been a kind of point of apprehension well i don't know the industry i don't want to get taken for a ride etc i'm happy to answer questions at the outset right like what should i be thinking about what are my options um and then in addition to legal advice folks should not shy away from financial advice. So there's an entire industry, um, the investment banking industry on the M&A side that is um, built around advising business owners on what their business is worth, what the strategic options are for their business, whether it be growth equity, an exit transaction, uh, et cetera. Right? Like what, what can I do and how, how can I better position myself to get to my ultimate um, objective. And so I think just for me, the one point that I think, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't touch on was just the value of seeking out the sophisticated expert advice and like realizing that, you know, because like you're not going to, going back to the plumbing analogy, if the handle is running on the, the toilet, is not, you know, connecting, you may pop the top off and tinker with that, right? But you're not going to, you may try to unclog the toilet with a, with a plunger, but if the clog is down in the pipe, you know what I mean? You're calling, mm-hmm. you're calling somebody. If your out, out discharge pipe is backing up in your basement, you're calling somebody. If you want to build on your house, you're calling somebody. So I think just approaching uh, the business side from that perspective, too, is, is important to better understand what the options are and to get it done right at the outset. Or, or, to, or to be told, hey, you know what? Um, I know you want to do this, but right now may not be the best time. And, and I've, I've connected, for example, uh, black entrepreneurs with uh, investment bankers who had that conversation with them in your industry. Um, here's what the most attractive companies look like. So at your size, you probably need to grow a couple more times, you know, get up to this amount of EBITDA, this amount of, of income, and then Let's have a conversation. You know, at that at that level, I can get you this multiple in the industry right now and in the market right now. But where you are today, you know, it, there's still a um, there's still a lot of work that a uh, an investor would have to do when they come in to kind of get you get your business running as a well oiled machine the way they would want it to run before investing. So that those kind of conversations are important to have. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Makes sense. I'm gonna ask one more question, but I do. I have. I have one. I'm gonna ask again. And, and you. And I, we didn't talk about this, so you cannot answer it. But I'm curious about your thoughts, right? So, what's happening in the cryptocurrency space? I is the tokenization of every asset class, right? So I could. I could so see. I mean, as a matter of fact, side note: the tech is already built. I got a homie who was an investment banker who like jumped into crypto. Um, opened a VC fund and a hedge fund two two years ago, and we talk on a regular basis because one of my strategies in, involves cryptocurrency. But my point is, we we're, we're talking tech is already built, re- waiting on regulation. But I think it's going to be super, like in the next five years, like for certain, but probably sooner, where companies will be able to raise money um, uh, via tokenization, right? So meaning meaning you say, hey, we're going to create these coins or whatever, you know, it'll be. Uh, dry cleaning XYZ coins, and we're going to dedicate X amount of our revenue or all of our revenue to these coin owners, which, you know, um, they're waiting the clarity on how the who's going to be involved in that or whatever, all that kind of stuff. But the tech is there, and it's, it's, it's going to happen. So, like, what are your thoughts on 
that happening in general and like uh have you looked at at that space as an attorney being a uh a forerunner there right because they're gonna the the nerds who make these smart contracts which is what the which is what they're called are, are probably gonna need le- like i don't know how legal people are gonna fit in there are they gonna help them create the smart contracts because once the smart contract is created there's really i mean there's no need for inter- intermediaries like it's done you know what i mean it's created so i'd imagine the lawyer role would be in helping create the smart contracts anyway I will admit I'm not crypto is um that's not my space. Okay. So I don't I you know I I I look at it I see what's going on but I think crypto is one of those spaces kind of similar to to the competition we're having on the business owner saying I'm not giving somebody you know a part of my business I I don't understand got it, how got it. that how that works and so for the folks who do you know I've I've always heard the um the adage in the investment space, invest in the things that you know, invest uh-huh. in what you use and kind of similar with from the legal perspective, uh, I I don't have any yeah, cryptocurrency. So not I, a, it's not a it's not a space that I'm looking to be the front runner in. And, I'm, <laughs> and I know that there are opportunities, potential mm-hmm. or real that are left on the table based on that. But everybody has to pick a pick a horse. I hear so that's you. just you know that's not mine. But I so I don't I say say I don't have an answer for that question. It's a great question and it's a you know. But I, I just I don't have an answer for it. No, nah, I, I I figured you might not because it's super. It, it is a super niche deal. But it's you want to talk about opportunity for our community. Like that is it. The way that the internet democratized communication, it took it out of the hands of the powers that be. Like money and security has been democratized and like the whole situation where a few people control the money supply, a few people control, you know, the investment banking industry, like that's all getting blown up. Like the financial system is literally getting rebuilt, you know, in, 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 in that space. Uh, and it's happened like over and over and over again throughout history. So, um, yeah, it we'll, we'll talk offline about it. Cause I, I think, uh, I would love to see more of us, involved in that space because it allows us to uh, again take take more power from the uh, the folks that want to hold us down yeah absolutely a- any 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 place where we can get a foothold um it's great and that's why i say you know what what you know you know we have a lot of folks in a lot of industries and so you know each of us and where we are and what we know um you know like for example you know to give another <laughs> shameless personal plug like i i do a bunch of uh, barbecue right i do a bunch of kind of traditional texas barbecue and you look at the national landscape on barbecue right now and when we're talking about like that real scientific side of barbecue that's not a side of barbecue that you see us in right mm-hmm. and so if you looked at the national landscape today, and you would made assumptions about what has historically been the reality, you would think, oh, we don't, that's not like black barbecue. That's not true. We we have historically been the ones smoking the brisket, smoking the hogs. In fact, there's a cat in, um, I think he's in, in South Carolina, a, a, a doctor, a neurosurgeon, and, and his family through generations has done whole, whole hog roasts, and he's still keeping the, tra- tra- the tradition alive kind of doing them now, right, while practicing medicine. So similar with the on the brisket thing and all of that, like, you know, you look at across the country, you see barbecue houses popping up everywhere and folks making great money and having TV shows and all of that based on barbecue. But, you know, w- where are we in it, right? Where are we in it? And I know you being a Texas guy, there's 
Texas, the landscape of barbecue in Texas, in particular barbecue in the black community, is vast. Like my dad's from from Southeast Texas, right? He's from Port Arthur. And so the Port Arthur links, you can't even find them outside <laughs> of the black community. But Port Arthur links, that's like in that part of the, the state, <laughs> that's barbecue, mm-hmm. right? And the techniques across um, it's called state lines, but across um, communities in states in barbecue, they differ. Like my dad's again, Southeast Texas, they do direct heat. So they're, they're, they're doing a bunch of direct heat smoking, whereas in other parts of the state, you're seeing the offset smoking. Um, but all of that stuff, is, it's been within our community, but that the the skill set is not enough. You know, there's the, um, p- p- the publicizing piece of it. There's the marketing piece of it. There's the kind of positioning piece of it. And all of that goes back to, I think, the full circle to the conversation that we're having, kind of knowing what you have and knowing what to do with it to get the best benefit from it. Because there's there's no, I, I, I would put as a as a private equity m attorney, I would put my brisket against any brisket in the world. <laughs> and I, I, I have no fear that it's going to stand up. I, I, every time I go to a barbecue house, I eat the brisket. And there's a lot of good brisket out there, but I will put mine against any brisket in the world. And that's not a a, a, a one-off thing. Like I've had great barbecue that no one knows about, and it's not what we think of when we think of the face of barbecue today from that kind of technical perspective. So anyway, hey man, that's a passion of mine. So to my point in bringing that up was investing in what you know and doing what you know. I would love to see black barbecue come back on the scene given this current national surge around barbecue that there's been data around the absence of black barbecue practitioners in this national conversation but the history i got i i I read the um you know black culinary realities in particular barbecue particular things that are derived from our um ancestry and experience in this country they, they fascinate me so i you know i've read uh, Michael Twitty's books and Adrian Miller's books on on soul food and the black cooking experience and kind of where that where those experiences come from and it's all there it's all there right like the you know there's a lot of conversation around the the roots of barbecue being in the Afro Caribbean experience going back to enslavement right and how it was brought forward or brought across the water to the south and the original pit masters who were running those pits running those logs checking that meat you know, it was black folks. And so those skills were transferred and, and taught, you know, and now present day, here's what we have. But that's no different than, you know, everything the, else. The Mississippi blues to jazz, to rap, to, to rock, rock and roll. roll right? yep. it, it, mm-hmm. It's the reality. Yep. No, I, I, I feel you. Well, um, Last question, man. Hey, and side note: next time you make something in briskets, man, I, I I send you, I cash up you some money to overnight it to me. I want to try it out, man. I love brisket. See, pe- people always tell me that, and I, <laughs> I should probably stop doing this, but I always say this to the folks who are out of town, especially folks in Texas. There's a lot of good brisket in Texas. I my brisket is incredible, but it is not worth the overnight fee that FedEx is going to charge. Okay, to get hey, you look, a brisket look. within thirty hours, given the weight of it. It's like hundreds of dollars. It's just I, as much as flattered as I am, I, I wouldn't pay me that for it. Hey, hey, man! Look, support, su- support, support black art, man. I, 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 uh, <laughs> I talk it up to the support black art. 
I appreciate that. Definitely. I'm I'm not going to do one for Christmas because I just have too much going on, good amount of time it takes. But maybe um, cool, next okay. time I'm up will be probably like uh, Easter or something like that. Cool. Bet. Yeah, we do that. I, yeah. So- sounds good, man. Well, hey, um, uh, favorite favorite basketball team? Uh, see, now, you, now you're going to expose me. I'm going to be honest, man. The only sport that I follow regularly is boxing. That's okay. It. So, so, all right, cool, perfect. No, you know what? You know what? Perfect. Spencer, Spencer, uh, uh, Crawford. Spence all day. I mean, all all day, and not just because I lived in Dallas for ten years, and he's probably my favorite boxer. My wife, my wife and daughter were joking with me this weekend um, with the fight being on. They were like, "We know what we're gonna get you for like that, like <laughs> lifetime." Um, birthday present like we're gonna figure out how to get you a, an introduction to Errol Spence so you can get a, a hello and be like I'm your favorite fan <laughs> um, like I I, I I don't think that Crawford has I haven't at least I haven't seen he's a phenomenal fighter but I just haven't seen where he's been in a ring with someone who has both the talent the skill and the attributes like physical attributes that Errol Spence has like I, in my opinion uh, Crawford is at his best when he's got time to think and freedom to roam in the ring. And I haven't seen him deal with somebody putting a jab in his face all night with the reach advantage, who is then behind that jab, pressing the action and forcing him to react in the moment. In my opinion, the way that fight goes is Terrence being a fighter after getting hit from the outside with the jab for a, a few rounds, he gets frustrated and wants to prove that he's like tough, like I'll show you. And I see him getting stopped. Mm. That that's that's how I mean Gamboa hurt him. Um, you know, the last dude, Mean Machine, dropped him and they they called it a slip. That wasn't a slip. I mean, he, he, he he's a fighter, but I don't know that, you know, where Arrow has shown that his chin is impeccable. I don't know that we know that about Terrence, and we know that the arrow can punch and, and throw a lot of them, you know, from different angles. So that's my opinion. But again, I'm biased, but that's not just my biased opinion. That's my kind of boxing fan opinion too. Yeah, no, I bet. Bet. Well, man, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show, giving your time. And uh, yeah, man, maybe when, when cannabis comes back legal, we'll have to do, do it again. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. Those of you who haven't been there, my website, go to stonehillwealthmanagement.com. Click on the 401k tab. We got a Stone here 401k service that you've probably heard about. It's great for businesses that are small businesses, businesses between zero and maybe 150 employees. Uh, we provide love and service to the employees about how to plan and invest for retirement and a whole host of other uh, benefits that we give. It's all on the site. Check it out, stonehill401k.com. We create startup plans and help with selecting the investments and educating and advising our clients on how to invest and how to best reach their retirement goals. If you are interested in having a review of your portfolio or to see how far on track you are with your retirement goals, Philip offers complimentary consults through his company, Stonehill Wealth Management. For more information, log on to stonehillwealthmanagement.com forward slash talk. That's stonehillwealthmanagement.com forward slash talk. 
Philip Washington Jr. is a registered investment advisor. Information presented is for educational purposes only and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. Investments involve risk and, unless otherwise stated, are not guaranteed. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy discussed herein. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.